A very warm welcome to everyone. It's great to be here with you this evening, and you are really very, very welcome. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral, and I'm the Chair of this evening's event. I'll introduce our speakers in just a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our events before, let me just quickly explain how it works. Uh, in a moment, Paula Gooder and Kate Coleman will speak about the Holy Spirit and how we can hear the voice of the Spirit in our own lives and in the church and world. Christians proclaim they believe in the Holy Spirit as Lord and giver of life and who has spoken through the prophets. And Paula will talk about the Holy Spirit and the Bible and Kate about the Spirit today. Each of them will speak for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have plenty of time for you to ask questions. And if you have a question, please write it down on the back of your program and then hold it up to be collected at any point in the evening. We won't think that you need to be excused, so you don't need to blush. Just hold up your questions with pride and we'll collect them in until around 7.40. Please, please do keep them brief, and certainly please keep them legible. We're also taking questions this evening via Twitter using the hashtag Holy Spirit, not just the third person of the Holy Trinity, but also now a hashtag. So if you'd like to send us your question through your electronic device, just type in your question and include hashtag Holy Spirit, and we will find it. Your questions will then be sent up to me here at the laptop, and I will put as many of them as I can to Kate and Paula. We'll end at 8 o'clock, and there's a bookstall here uh, where you can buy the speakers' books, and they've both very kindly said that they will sign copies afterwards uh, at the table over there. And so now it gives me real pleasure to introduce to you our speakers this evening. Dr. Paula Gooder is one of the best-known biblical scholars and theologians at work here today. Her day job is Director for Mission Learning and Development in the Diocese of Birmingham, and she's also a reader in the Church of England. Before this, she spent 12 years teaching people to be vicars at Ripon College Cudston in Oxford and Queen's Foundation in Birmingham, and impressively, or probably understandably, all without becoming one herself. But most of us here will know her from her wonderful writing about the Bible. Her books about the Bible and contemporary Christianity are not only bought, but actually read to the end. They are loved and digested and for many, many people have been a great source of inspiration, deepening faith and new, surprising, profound insights into the Bible they thought they knew. She has a great ministry and we're very grateful for her coming back to talk to us at St. Paul's again tonight. The Reverend Dr. Kate Coleman is a Baptist minister and has also come here today from Birmingham. 
don't know what it is uh, about Birmingham. The writer Lee Child uh, once said that he grew up in Birmingham where they make, he said, useful things and make them well. And tonight you will understand how right he was. Kate was an adult convert to Christianity when she was on the way to becoming a professional scientist. Her first experience of faith was in a church which didn't believe in women being leaders, and she didn't either. Fast forward, and she's not only a Baptist minister, but a former president of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the first female chair of the Evangelical Alliance Council, and the founding director of Next Leadership, which mentors women and men in leadership. So something happened, and something involving the Holy Spirit. She says of her journey with God that it has had a lot of surprises, and that little brief bio of her I've given you leads me to think, no kidding. We're really delighted that she's come to talk to us about that God of surprises and how we also might attend to the voice of the Spirit leading us to unexpected callings and company. But first, Paul is going to explore something about the Holy Spirit in the Bible for us. So please, would you join me in welcoming tonight both our speakers. Thanks very much, Thank you. It's a um, great pleasure to be back here with you and exploring a fascinating subject. Um, speakers often complain that they've been given a subject that can't quite be done justice to in the time allotted. Um, and I always feel irritated with them and think they should just get on with it and not complain. However, tonight I feel I need to join their ranks. And if you are thinking while I speak, that she's missed out a lot about the Holy Spirit. You have no idea how much I've missed out. The cuttings pile was far greater than the insertion pile on the Holy Spirit. What to say about the Holy Spirit in 20 minutes is not easy. And it becomes even harder in a week like this one a week in which we are still grieving and mourning those who suffered such a terrible tragedy on London Bridge, and in which we are seeking within our hearts how we might vote, which we must do on Thursday. How do you speak about the Holy Spirit in a week like this? So what I've done is I've tried to come up with three themes about the Holy Spirit that I feel can be helpfully reflected on in this week. If you are wondering why I've missed out other things, call it 20 minutes. That's why. No other good reason. Um, and I just want to pick up three key themes um, through which begin in the Old Testament and can begin to can be seen flowing into the New Testament. Three and a little bit themes because there's one theme that I want to explore to start with, which is not part of my three. So we're doing three plus one. One of the 
elements that people often scratch their heads over with the Holy Spirit is what pronoun should you use? When you are fed up of saying Holy Spirit, what pronoun do you then insert? And the thing that I'm always intrigued by is the confidence with which people state the pronoun that you should use. Some state with absolute confidence it should definitely be he. Others with equal confidence, definitely she. I've even heard people arguing passionately for it. So we have our range of pronouns. Why is it so difficult? The problem is because the biblical text doesn't help us. Um, In fact, it makes it really complicated. You may or may not know that the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, is a very unusual word in that it is used in both masculine and feminine forms in the Old Testament. And you can tell in Hebrew by the way they put it into plural. So when they put it into plural, it's sometimes feminine, and you might be interested to know, more often feminine, but it is also put into the plural in the masculine. So the Old Testament doesn't help a lot. You come into the New Testament, and we have the normal word for spirit, which is pneuma, which we know um, from various um, uses in our English language. And that is in the neuter. You might turn your attention to John's gospel and find the word that John uses for the spirit, which many of you will know is the advocate, which is masculine. By the time you get into the early church and the Syriac language, then the spirit has become completely feminine. So how do you choose which pronoun um, to use for the Holy Spirit? You just decide and get going, as far as I can, can, can see. So I will attempt to switch between, if I use the pronoun, you can count and see how successfully I do this, I'll try and switch between all three. No idea whether I'll succeed, but I'll have a go. So that was my not real proper point. That was just a starting point. Now I'm on to my three points. And the three points I want to bring out about the spirit today are the spirit as the agent of prophecy and actually what happens in the agency of prophecy and the spirit. The spirit and the importance of creativity, creativity in the world. And then thirdly, and possibly most importantly, our spirit and God's spirit, and the interweaving between God's spirit and our spirit. And out of that, I hope I'll produce some reflections that will also help us in our ruminations about talking about the Holy Spirit precisely this week. Let's see how well I do. Let's begin with the spirit as the agency of prophecy. For me, one of the really striking things about the Old Testament is time and time again in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit falls on prophets. It is often said by Old Testament scholars that the difference between the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New Testament is that the Spirit in the Old Testament comes and goes. It falls, she goes. See, there you go, I managed it. And in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and stays. And that's the difference between the two. Old Testament comes and goes. New Testament comes and stays. 
I've always thought you need to be a little bit careful about overpressing the point because I think you can always find exceptions to those kinds of rules. But nevertheless, I think it's a, an interesting rule of thumb to notice that in the Old Testament, the spirit is often temporary. The New Testament, largely permanent. And you can reflect a little bit about the shifts that take, um, that take place in that um, as a reflection on that. But for me, one of, kind of the really important features, therefore, of the Spirit is that the Spirit falls and allows people to speak the Word of God into the context in which they find themselves. And in a moment, we're going to be having a look at the Spirit as breath. There is, I think, a very close and very important connection between the breath of God and the Word of God. Because, of course, the word comes on the breath. If the breath is, in fact, God's spirit, there is a strong, strong connection between God's word and um, breath um, as the Holy Spirit. And what you get into there is, for me, one really striking point. Trace your way through the Old Testament and have a look at what the Old Testament prophets say. And you will find two major strands of message Um, which are really important all the way through the Old Testament, you will find challenge, very strong challenge, um, into how people are living, what they're doing, how they relate to people around them, what they're doing with the poor, how they're using their money, very strong challenge all the way through the Old Testament. You also find prophets speaking God's word of comfort and hope. God comes to people in their trouble and speaks a profound message of hope. You will be very familiar with the phrase that is often used um, in slightly different forms, either um, the comfort of the afflicted and the afflictor of the comfortable, or the comfort of the disturbed and the disturber of the comfortable. If you do a little research on that phrase, you will find it associated with all sorts of things like art and poetry and fiction and journalism. Um, I think it beautifully fits a description of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the disturber of the comfortable, but also the comforter of the afflicted. And in a week like this week, it seems to me to be a really important element that we're thinking about when we're exploring the whole aspect of the Holy Spirit, which is when we are deciding how we place our votes on Thursday, it is worth us reflecting in what ways we need to be disturbed from our comfort in our voting patterns. At the same time, when we're reflecting on what happened on Saturday evening, um, there's a very, very strong strand of the importance of the comfort of those who are afflicted. So those kind of two themes run very strongly together. First point then, the Holy Spirit as the prophetic voice that challenges and comforts. And so let me, let me just um, bring those two together um, in um, a phrase that I'm very, very fond of. Um, one of the things that I think is really very striking about um, our language of comfort is that in the English language, the language of comfort has become used almost exclusively for making us feel better when we're miserable, stroking us a little bit and comforting. Some of you will be familiar with um, the Bayeux Tapestry, 
and the way in which the word is used in the Bayer tapestry. And it is one of my favorite illustrations of the way in which language changes. I mean, the Bayer tapestry, um, Bishop Odo, the brother of um, William the Conqueror, is said to be comforting his troops. And he does so with a large mace above his head, whirling around, looking like he's about to beat them over the head with it. The word comfort does indeed mean bringing hope and um, help in times of trouble. It also means sometimes a a sharp kick um, to get us to do things. In that instance, then, comfort becomes both challenge and hope. So my first point, the Holy Spirit as prophet. But then you get into some very, very interesting territory in the Old Testament, which is that the Spirit is very difficult to tie down. And if you want any point about the Holy Spirit, it is how difficult it is even to define what the Holy Spirit is. And one of the ways in which we struggle with defining the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is because of the way in which it is translated. Sometimes the Hebrew word ruach is translated as spirit. Sometimes it is translated as breath. And sometimes it is translated as wind. And I just want to read to you a passage from Ezekiel. You will all know it. It's Ezekiel 37, even if you don't think you know it. If I just say to you, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, you will know what I'm talking about. And Ruach is essential to Ezekiel 37. And what I want to do is read to you three sections from Ezekiel 37, and you might get the idea of what's going on, because it's a really important point. So I'm going to read Ezekiel 37, verse 1, verse 6, and verse 9. I'll read them straight through, but what I'm going to do is I will give you the English translation, but I'll also indicate to you where the word ruach is, because you might not always notice it. So here we go. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit, ruach, of the Lord. And he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And then we get the vision of the dry bones. And then God begins to talk about what will happen to the dry bones. Verse 6, I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath, ruach, in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then he goes on a little bit more and then he says to Ezekiel, now prophesy that this is going to take place. And he says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, ruach mortal, and say to the breath, Ruach, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, Ruach, O breath, Ruach, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. What is really striking about the passage is it's just packed full of Ruach, but you can't necessarily tell Because in order to make it make sense in English, we need to change the words that are used um, in order to be able to communicate it. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, what therefore does the spirit mean? Does it mean spirit? Or does it mean breath? Or does it mean wind? The answer, of course, is yes. 
it does. And the challenge is the recognition that, as far as we are concerned, we want to differentiate between them. And we want to say, now it's wind. Now it's breath. Now it's spirit. As far as we can tell, the Old Testament writers did not. They did not want to differentiate in precisely that kind of way. Because they understood the spirit to be the wind, to be the breath. Let me just explain a little bit about what that means, because I think it becomes quite an important feature. Um, Somebody called Dale Martin has written a really helpful book on the Corinthian body and the understanding of bodies um, within the writing of 1 Corinthians. And he says this, which I will then go on to explain. In the ancient world, the human body was not like a microcosm. It was a microcosm, a small version of the universe at large. What he means by that is, were you to be able to look out of this beautiful building and see a tree, what you would see probably, especially this evening, is the tree blowing in the wind. What is animating the world out there in the ancient mind was the wind. If you turn your attention to your body and you breathe out, you will notice... I was nearly going to say, you will notice some wind. You probably will. Um, But you will notice breath. And in the ancient world, what they were saying is that wind that is animating the tree is this wind that is animating me. What is that? What is this? It is the Holy Spirit. So in their minds, the Spirit was something which was very powerfully life-creating. And you will find the strand all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament that the key feature of the Holy Spirit is that it creates life. It brings life wherever life is needed. Back to Ezekiel 37. What made the dry bones live? What made the dry bones live was the Spirit. So my second point about the Spirit is if you want to discern where the Spirit is, if you are saying, how do I know where the Spirit is? The answer is, is life being generated? Is there life around? If life is around, it is a marker of the Holy Spirit. If life is not around, it is a marker of the lack of the Holy Spirit. And that you would find that very strong element all the way through. My third and final point um, moves very much more strongly on into Paul and the New Testament, but picks up various strands from the Old Testament as well. One of the intriguing things that we haven't yet commented on is that I've said that in the Old Testament, the spirit can be translated as God's spirit, can be translated as wind, can be translated as breath. But the spirit can also be used to refer to an individual individuals have spirit. And one of the really striking things by the time you get to the writings of Paul is that Paul, I don't know if you've ever been in the middle of a passage of Paul um, and got really confused. I probably should just stop there, shouldn't I? Um, But let me continue. If you've ever been in the middle of a passage of Paul and been really confused about which spirit he's talking about at precisely this moment. Our English translators like to try and make it a bit more straightforward for us by when they want us to think it's God or Christ's spirit, they give it a capital S. When they want to think it's our spirit, they give us a small s. The thing you must always bear in mind is that is just their opinion. 
they have, the translator has decided for you. And you are allowed to disagree. And one of the things I think that is really very striking about spirit largest, spirit smallest, is that in Paul's writings, there are times when it is very, very clear he is talking about God's spirit. And there are times that is very, very clear that he's talking about the human spirit. And there are also times when it is not clear. And he does it on purpose. And the reason why he does it on purpose, in my view, is because there becomes a moment in the life of the Christian when the differentiation between my spirit and God's spirit is almost impossible to discern. The idea of my spirit is that my spirit has been breathed into me by the breath of God. But it is that feature, that factor, that most responds to the spirit of God. And when it most responds to the spirit of God, you begin to find the interweaving work of the spirit of God. Until you get to the stage where you simply could not say whether it is your spirit or God's spirit. It is that interweaving factor which lies at the very heart of the spirit of God. God's spirit comes to us and as it comes to us, it draws us Godward. And as it draws us Godward, we become more and more like God, more and more like Christ, until you simply could not tell whether it was God's spirit or our spirit. And that brings us for, to be able to recognize some of the language that you find in places like Romans 8, which is where I'd like to um, just finish here. You'll know this passage very well, but you might begin to see what's going on in this particular context. Romans 8, verses 26 to 27. I'll, I'll explain it quickly as I go. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the ver that very Spirit intercedes with us with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As I said in that passage, which bit is God's Spirit? Which bit is our Spirit? The answer is, who knows and frankly, who cares? The point is that it is Spirit that God hears. And um, I'm always entertained by the translation. It's a very, very tidy translation in the RSV. The Spirit intercedes with sighs. The Greek word is grunts. And I don't know about you, in a week like this, um, I can't even manage a proper sigh. A grunt is all that will come out in that, the kind of overwhelming emotion. And the sense that actually it is at that moment that God's Spirit interweaves fully with my spirit and speaks deep into the heart of God with language that I could never come up with. So, three points very quickly. God's spirit is the God, is the spirit that places words of prophecy into the world, words of challenge and words of hope. God's spirit is the spirit that breathes the breath of God into the world, always, always bringing life. And God's spirit is the spirit that reaches deep within us to our own spirits, interweaving with us 
and grunting with grunts too deep for words, and God hears. If you'd just like to go up and begin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Could I have Wow, well, my task is to spend uh, these next few minutes talking about what the Spirit is doing in the church and in the world today. And I have to say that I don't think I have um, Paula's discipline of going between the various pronouns. Um, So I'm going to work with the uh, masculine pronoun um, just for ease. Um, I'm very aware that there are many things that could be said um, about the subject of the Spirit um, at work in the church and in the world, but I plan to limit my comments um, to what follows. The first thing is that the Spirit of God is still very much at work in the church worldwide, a church that is often characterized and against the background often of struggle and of persecution and of difficulty, and yes, tragedy too. It's well documented as well um, that the most explosive and fastest growing expressions of church worldwide are Pentecostal and charismatic expressions, and their spread has been so dramatic um, that it's undoubtedly helped to stir renewed interest and engagement with the Spirit across a wide spectrum of traditions. We are living in the midst of a pneumatological renaissance, according to one scholar. That's not to say that everyone is happy about this development. Um, Some fear, and sometimes rightly so, um, what sometimes appears to be chaos or a lack of order. But the non-coercive, non-manipulative, non-aggrandizing power that Jesus urged the early disciples to wait for in Acts 1 verse 8 is no ordinary power. One writer says, the Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we have derived words like dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit will make a noise, and on and, and their words and lives will, and presence will change things. It's almost as if by awakening the church to his presence, the Holy Spirit is once again trying to get our attention, not just to who he is, the third person of the triune God, but also to what he does in constantly amplifying the Son and how he does it. When we are expectant and show hospitality to and collaborate with the Spirit, it's never business as usual, but another dimension of our lives with God. In fact, our celebration of Pentecost is a constant and necessary reminder that the Spirit is not only the origin of life, but is also and always the origin of the church. The events of Pentecost make the church possible, and the outpouring of the Spirit lies at its center. So although no church tradition can claim a monopoly of the Spirit, neither can any church tradition escape his activity. For the promise of Pentecost is that this very same Spirit is now a permanent feature of the age of the church and is still very active among us today in so many ways, including in bringing the promise of unity 
in a world that is in real danger of breaking apart, and in a society divided and fragmented along lines of race and class and culture, ethnicity, religion, subculture, gender, and anything else you'd care to mention, Pentecost is a reminder that as we expect, show hospitality to and collaborate with the Spirit, he continues to inspire unusual and even supernatural unity within spaces and among people you'd least expect to find it. That very first Pentecost represents a scenario in which a multicultural and multi-ethnic and multilingual and multinational and mixed-gender gathering are powerfully impacted by the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And having made what can only be described as a spectacular entrance, the Spirit prompts the Apostle as he seeks to explain to the curious crowds um, the manifestation of languages and joy and what seemed to some like drunkenness. He declared of all the utterances available, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. Joel's vision of a spirit-soaked future presents us with a tantalizing promise of diversity and wholesale gender equality. For the very first time in the biblical text, God not only accepts different languages, he introduces a few more through the spirit-inspired speech of the disciples. Throughout the history of the church, there have been echoes of this moment where the distances between race and class and culture and gender and a multitude of other identities have been collapsed. One noteworthy instance um, are the events um, that are so key within Pentecostal history, the events at Azusa Street, um, the revival in Los Angeles in, in 1906. It was during this time we read that William Seymour worked to build a multicultural church at Azusa Street where for several years the outpouring of the Spirit brought heaven to earth, God to humanity, and spirit to body. In that context, women were encouraged to preach. Interracial worship was practiced and missionaries were sent to over 50 nations worldwide in a period of two years. And all this phenomenal and pioneering work took place at least 50 years before both the civil rights and the women's rights movement. And in a context where segregationist practices were normal, there the trappings of privilege were powerfully and wonderfully relinquished. Holy Spirit visits us again with that kind of unity. The Spirit of God also continues to equip us with both gifts and purpose, not just the spiritual gifts that create so much contention and controversy in some circles, but also our natural gifts and capabilities. And least we forget, God gives us himself. In creation as in redemption, in Eden as at Pentecost, God is the giver of gifts. Our natural talents and the supernatural talents we receive as followers of Christ all come from the same Holy Spirit. He brings life to gifts already given in creation and adds to them new gifts. You may not like it or even want it. But the church is called to minister to heal and liberate people by the power of the Spirit, just as Jesus is said to have done in Acts 10.38. 
It's as we discover and develop and deploy our natural gifts, our talents and capabilities, and as we discern our calling and the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, that we find ourselves enabled to fulfill both our promise and our purpose for this world and the next. According to Ephesians, the church should be committed to equipping all its members for life and mission. And it's the power of the Spirit that makes the difference. Someone put it like this, politicians generate legislation, educators generate useful knowledge, business people generate jobs, economists generate calculations, sociologists generate helpful theory, and psychologists encourage self-understanding. However, only one person enables us to manifest the powers of the age to come. Natural gifts by themselves are not enough. Supernatural gifts by themselves are not enough. But together, they enable us to be transformed and transforming. And we don't have to choose between the spiritual or the bodily and material, the individual or the social, the human or the rest of creation. The implications of the Spirit's activities are as wide and as broad as the Spirit's remit in creation, salvation, and revelation. I hadn't been a Christian for long before I realized that I could pray about anything because God was concerned about everything. And last year, I found myself publicly praying for rain in an area of, Ke of Kenya I was told had not seen rain for months or where the first harvest had already failed and it looked as if there was no point planting in preparation for the second harvest. People were devastated. But it did rain, by the way, 15 minutes later a river-filling, ground-soaking, land-healing, heavy rain. Today I engage in passionate worship and justice because I know that during those intense times of the Spirit's activity that some Christians refer to as revival, um, Jim Wallace writes in his book, Seven Ways to Change the World, faith becomes life-changing, but rather than restricted to personal issues and the inner life alone, it explodes into the world with a powerful force. He adds, church historians tell us that spiritual activity isn't called revival until it has changed something in society. But even amazing talents, capabilities, and wonderful spiritual gifts are not enough. We also need the Spirit's work of formation because the Spirit of God forms us to become who we need to be. As Christians, we measure growth in many different ways, but we tend to focus on the horizontal or lateral growth of talents and capabilities and spiritual gifts and even our intellectual knowledge of the truth. However, you can do a thousand Bible studies and theological training and still be none the wiser. And I use that word advisedly. As important as horizontal growth is, we all know that learning about stuff, being able to do stuff and having stuff, doesn't automatically lead to transformation or to being transformed. It's vertical development that leads to the bigger hearts and minds that we call maturity, wisdom, grace, discernment, righteousness, and the ability to see life from somebody else's point of view. And both horizontal and vertical formation are absolutely necessary, and the Holy Spirit is involved in both. But Christianity is primarily and always a call to transformation, not just information. The key work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the forming of Christ-like character in us, but he does not change us or work through us by virtue of us, us simply being in his presence. In other words, the Spirit is not like some divine marinade 
changing us whether we want to be changed or not. This is a dynamic process, and our part in the process is to develop the disciplines and practices that make us ready to receive God's Spirit and to cooperate with his work in our lives. As one writer put it, it's God who does the work in us, but our work is to let him do it. God is committed to bringing out the very best in us, as well as enabling and equipping us to serve purposes prepared for each one of us. But be warned, such growth is not a particularly spectacular process. There is no quick fix. We cannot learn it all at once nor develop it overnight. There are habits and disciplines that create hospitable conditions for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Habits that help us to pay closer attention to God. Richard Foster suggests that these habits include prayer, study, worship, fasting, and meditation. But I say that they also include self-reflection, dialogue with diversity, collaboration across experience, commitment to life and community, coming face-to-face with ourselves and others and the way things really are rather than how we would like them to be. The many habits that create the hospitable conditions for the Spirit in our lives takes time and energy, effort and investment. And the Bible is full of images that reflect this. The potter molding the clay, the apprentice, disciple, the vine, branches, and the bearing of fruit, the images of growth, the call to journey, the training like the athlete, or running the race. And as we make a home for the Spirit in our lives and churches, we are urged to then keep in step with and to walk in the Spirit. Even things that happen quickly have to be integrated into the whole of our lives. As someone once said, there are no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. The road to such growth is not an easy one and involves moments of moral crisis and confrontation, but it takes more than adversity to lead to growth. We also grow when we absorb the best traits from our closest friends, when we seek to serve someone we love deeply, or admire greatly, we grow and enlarge our emotional capacity when we experience great art or music. The causes we commit to also elevate our desires and help us to organize our energies. And of course, our desire to honor God. But we can't do this without the community of faith because it doesn't take long before it becomes apparent that we have blind spots In biological terms, these are the area of the retina of the eye that is insensitive to light. It's why the stars seem to twinkle at night. They're not really twinkling. I've always wondered why God would deliberately create us with blind spots biologically and individually until it occurred to me that perhaps there are some things God actually wants us to see through the eyes of family, friends, and community. There are aspects of our formation that we can't work out for ourselves. There are strengths and weaknesses that we'll never be able to notice without the help of others. You may not realize you are moody, but trust me, someone else does. Or arrogant and bullish, someone else knows. Frustrating, someone else sees it. God places us in community for this very reason, so that we can grow. 
and become all that he calls us to. The Spirit of God also empowers us for whatever we need to do. Another distinguishing feature of the Spirit's work is the way he enables us to step up and speak up and stand out in the midst of fear or crisis. Stuart Burns recounts the story of Martin Luther King Jr. One evening at the height of the Montgomery bus boycott in January 1956, after he'd received dozens of death threats by phone and mail. Around midnight, the story goes, as he struggled to sleep, the phone rang once more. Listen, N-word. An ugly voice crackled over the wire. We're tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. He, Martin, paced the bedroom floor in angry fear, then walked across the hall to the kitchen and heated some coffee. He tried to find solace in what philosophy and theology had taught him about the meaning of evil. Could there be good without evil? Could there be redemption without sin? No answer came to shake his despair. Nothing relieved the fear in his gut. He was ready to give up. I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer, he recalled in a sermon the summer before his death. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now as he had in past troubles. You can't even call on mama now. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. He had to call on the Holy Spirit's power to help him through. He discovered at this midnight hour that religion had to become real to me, not merely a hand-me-down family business, and I had to know God for myself. With my head in my hands, I bowed down over that cup of coffee. Oh, yes, I prayed a prayer. I prayed out loud that night. At that moment, he continued, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. What is God asking you to stand up for, to speak up for, to stand out for? Thank God it doesn't all depend on you. Finally, the Spirit also provides us with perspective. The danger with all the talk about the Spirit's activity in and through the church is that we can forget that he had a job well beforehand. Someone wrote, God's actions in creation and in every life demonstrate that the Spirit who is poured out on the church at Pentecost is by no means visiting our planet for the first time. The Spirit of God is not a genie in a bottle that we have to rub the right way before he leaps out to do our bidding and perhaps even gives us three wishes. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. John 3.8 is a reminder that we cannot contain or control the Spirit. He cannot be confined or limited by our beliefs, our convictions, our books, or our methodology. He breaks out every time he is himself. The church has her, man her mandate and commission to execute in the power of the Spirit that the church is no substitute for the Spirit's work in the world. Indeed, the church is dependent on the Spirit's work, not just for power, but for direction, for wisdom and revelation. 
In the words of uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the church is part of the history of the creative spirit. We do not direct the spirit. Instead, we are to be directed by the spirit. One of the best biblical illustrations of this is in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Paul knew that he'd been supernaturally forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He knew that he should not enter Bithynia, even though he had planned to do so, because the Spirit of Jesus told him. He also understood the next step of his journey, because he had a vision of a man from Macedonia pleading with him to come to help them. Not only does the Spirit prepare others way before the church arrives, he also prepares the church way before it's even included on the church's itinerary. But how did Paul know? How could he tell? Discernment can be a challenging process when there are so many voices to contend with, including our own voice and the voice of others, and as well the Spirit's voice. But we must never forget that the Spirit's aim is to amplify the sun so that the more active the spirit is in our lives, the more prominent the sun. The voice of the spirit is not your voice. It's not my voice. And learning to recognize it is much like learning anything. We need to take risks and practice, 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 all the while remembering that God wants us to know more than we want to know. Also know that the spirit will not contradict himself or what we know of Jesus. Know that he opposes malevolent interests, that he elevates truth and will always lead us toward loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, the two great commandments. We do not lead the Holy Spirit into mission. We respond to his activity. This is a perspective-building exercise. There are those who leave their homes every day in anticipation of who the Spirit may prompt them to speak to or encourage or where the Spirit may encourage them to go. They live with the expectation that the Spirit wants to heal bodies and minds and land and relationships and institutions and cultures, and they're ready for the prompt. But there is often a deep and wide chasm between what the early church viewed as normative activity of the Spirit churches in other parts of the world too, and often what we view as normative practice of the Spirit in our lives and communities. And often the distinguishing features between our experience and theirs is little more than expectation, showing hospitality to, and a willingness to collaborate with the Spirit. But the dunamis of the Spirit isn't just for someone else in another era or some other part of the world. This is for you and I and everyone who is part of the community of the Spirit. We too can discern and join in with the Spirit's activity. So we ask, come Holy Spirit, in the midst of the many challenges, uncertainty, and tragedies, show us the opportunities to amplify the sun, bring unity, equip us with gifts and purpose, form us to be who we need to be, and empower us for whatever we need to do and give us perspective. Amen. Thank you very much.
Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, now is your time to please write down your questions and uh, hold them up, and they'll be collected. Uh, and you can continue doing that as we start our conversation. If something triggers off a, a question, please write it down, hold it up, and it will be collected from you. Let me just start us off. Um, Paula, uh, as I was sitting listening to the translations of the Spirit, I was thinking we often pray for a church that's full of the Spirit, but what we often get is a church full of wind. <laughs> um, Very good. What, what insights do you have from the Bible as to what can stop the Spirit working in a community? Oh, there's a very interesting question. I think the problem is... Um, oh, no, sorry. Just, just trying to formulate my thoughts quickly. Um, maybe the place that you would go to have a look for that would be the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, where in each one of them um, there seems to be something that has pulled their attention away from the action of the Spirit. Um, so the, the answer is there are many things that can do that. Um, some examples from Revelation would be division, inward looking, um, losing your edge, you know, the, the lukewarm being neither hot nor cold. Um, so there's kind of a range of features, but probably they're all gathered together under the same heading, which is the Spirit draws us ever Godwards. So whenever in our communities, for whatever reason, we prevent ourselves corporately and individually from being drawn Godwards, that's when the Spirit is prevented from working. Thank you. Uh, Possibly, but that's my first answer. <laughs> Very um, good answer. I was thinking, uh, I used to be taught by Sarah Coakley. It was always deeply difficult because I used to have to say, could you please tell Dr. Coakley that Mr. Oakley is here? <laughs> um, it sounded like we were doing the hokey-cokey. Um, but she gave some wonderful lectures on, on the spirit, and she would often do it through art. And she would say, look, a great big father and a very large son and, and a little bird which you can hardly see. Uh, and we used to call it Spot the Budgie. Uh, every week we would try and find the Holy Spirit in this picture. And one of the things that she pointed out is that in the 20th century, the great theologians, Bart, Jungel, Rana, Kung, Schillebeck, they all had rather underdeveloped theologies of the Holy Spirit. Moltmann and von Balthasar stand out as, as having developed it more. And one wonders if this was because the 20th century had seen the human placed under such a magnifying glass, the Holocaust, Rwanda, mm. and anything that could feel triumphalist or maybe even evasive might appear not to be something you'd want to pursue. What, what you, you were saying that there is a, a surge of, of uh, spirit-filled yeah. communities in the church. But do you think there is something to this, that in the 20th century, we were scared of exploring it because it did sound too triumphalist? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, you know, I think sometimes the language that has been used 
uh, in particular church circles has been singularly unhelpful mm. um, and has really had those triumphalistic overtones and and has sometimes been almost militaristic and mm. and and self-aggrandizing you know has has actually put the human at the center in a way that uh, when we're talking about the spirit spirit and engaging with spirit we're actually not invited to do. Um, but I think the other side of this is that, you know, I spend um, quite a bit of my time um, traveling in different places, um, spend a lot of my time in, in, in Africa and amongst Africans who have experienced tremendous tragedy and difficulty um, and challenge and yet are seeing um, and experiencing the spirit in ways we often don't experience him here. Um, so it's it's although we're talking about you know the 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 this era of the human and all of these uh, moments in history that somehow diminish that. Uh, what I'm seeing is almost the opposite. That in in tremendous persecution or difficulty um, or struggle. Um, that there is an openness um, okay. to the spirit mm. um, in a way that we haven't seen for, for, for many, many years. Okay. And I, w I wonder whether um, an another element is, particularly within the West, um, that surrendering to the Holy Spirit involves surrendering control. Yes. Yeah. And the marker of the Enlightenment was rationality, mm. self-control, being in control of everything. Um, and um, we just don't like to surrender that element of control. So we make the spirit tiny and insignificant, lest he, she, it yeah. control us. Yeah. And, and why, just to think about that mm. artwork, why a dove? Why in the scriptures, why is it a dove? Why not an eagle or ostrich? Because it's mentioned at the baptism of Jesus. Yes, I know, but why do you think a dove? Why, oh, you see, why, so not just in the mm. artwork. Um, May maybe the element of the spirit of gentleness, maybe the reference back to Noah's Ark and the discovery mm -hmm. of the olive branch, mm -hmm. but the, there's kind of a, it, it kind of has a rich iconography behind it from the biblical tradition, but probably Noah and back Noah, to Jesus. Noah and the olive. Mm -hmm. Lots of questions coming in here, so let's let's start them off. Um, You've, you've touched on this, so let's go there. If all parts of the triune God are he, do we have an incomplete God? Where is the feminine reflected, embraced? Who wants to start? Well, I, I think Paula dealt Paula. with this. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the Spirit's he, telling you that the Paula Spirit goes is telling you. <laughs> That's right. I, I, think, I think Paula kind of dealt with this fairly well yeah. in her introduction. Yeah. Um, you know, that... It, the, the, the challenge of the pronouns is, is a very real challenge. Um, but the use of a particular pronoun, as long as we maintain um, our understanding that the spirit is just much bigger than that, cannot be contained by our language. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Well, I, th I think the real problem with pronouns is that Pronouns shouldn't really be used of God because they are used of human beings. And therefore, in using pronouns of God, you are in some way diminishing. The ideal would be to come up with a particular God pronoun yep. that could then be used that was not um, specifically, either not specifically gendered or 
entirely gendered, you know, maybe would be ideal. Mm. Um, my anxiety about um, making using the feminine just for the spirit um, is partially because there just isn't really the textual evidence to support it, but also because for some, not in all traditions, but for some, the spirit is... Um, can you say the, the least important part of the Godhead? Mm. Even as I say it, I don't want to say it because it's the wrong thing to say. But I, I'm slightly anxious about saying, we'll just have a, you know, we like to have a token woman around, so we'll have the token woman mm. and there's the spirit. won't make that yeah. much difference. It's okay. And so my anxiety is of, of just trying to kind of bring in a little bit of gender um, mm -hmm. actually undermines the point that you're trying to make rather than support it. by not doing it, you still end up with a liturgy in yes, most exactly. churches, right. not mm. all of them, of course, where the Trinity can sound like a men-only club. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I, th I think some of this is also to do with the, the, the poverty of, of the English language, yes. as I might be saying. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, in, 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 you know, I was born in Ghana in West Africa, and there are um, languages that, that don't just have the masculine and the feminine. They have another pronoun, and yes. oftentimes in the biblical text that pronoun is used um, so that there's less uh, way of being, you know, uh, confused um, in, in the matter. Um, so some, some of this is because English has been used everywhere and we use he and she and it and none of those is really adequate. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, for Kate, can you tell us more about how you yourself heard the spirit in a way that led you to make the big changes in your life? Well... Where do I begin with that? Um, yes, um, my experience of of the spirit in my life was was actually quite a surprise. It was a surprising interaction. I had been on the run from God for some time. I hadn't realized that was what was happening, um, and then was very soundly apprehended. Um, and something I'm going to say about this is going to sound like it's contradicting something else that I said earlier. Um, but I, my, my, my first major encounter with God through his spirit um, was actually at a Christian rock concert. Um, and I was there kind of under duress. Um, I hadn't wanted to be there. And I was actually quite angry and upset with all these happy Christians enjoying the, the, the music when actually the world was in a terrible state and all sorts of things were happening out there. Um, but at the end of that concert, um, the, the lead singer, they had actually been quite a good band, but you know, the lead singer um, then invited everybody to close their eyes and um, to pray. And if they wanted to know more about Jesus, that they should raise their hand. And I remember very distinctively thinking, um, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is totally stupid. And I'm definitely not going to do that. But then realizing that I had done it. So, you know, I kind of opened my eyes and there was my hand. And um, it, it was just this, this sense of the spirit's voice is not the same as our voice. And his, but his prompting is, is very strong. He heard my inner desire. Um, and that was one of the first instances that... I recognize the difference between my voice and the Spirit's voice. 
So uh, there, there are lots of other instances, um, lots of other moments um, that I had to do that learning. I have to say that at times I've heard my voice and thought it was the Spirit's voice. Um, but this is something that comes with practice. Thank you. And this leads us to a question that's come in that's linked to that. If we think the Holy Spirit might be guiding us, how can we tell if that is what's happening? People have done opposite things saying it's from the Spirit, so some of them must be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, is, 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 is use of the Spirit just a way of, you know, an excuse for getting away with anything? Paula? When I was teaching in theological college, um, somebody put in an essay and um, I'll try not to identify too closely so you won't be able to know, um, anyone won't to know what I'm talking about, but somebody put in an essay um, and we came to the tutorial and I said, um, it's a rather unusual interpretation. And um, they said, um, the spirit told me. <laughs> and I said, the spirit hasn't told any other biblical scholar that particular interpretation of the passage. <laughs> and she said, well, the Spirit told me, so I must be right. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that question kind of hones down exactly that question. Um, the Spirit, you, you can use the Spirit as a great excuse mm -hmm. for simply, well, it's just my idea. And how do you begin to do that discerning that says, mm -hmm. no, this is genuinely the Spirit and not just me going off on a wacky yeah. idea? Um, and I think one of the things that I would use as the marker, and maybe Kate will have some others, is um, to look at the patterns of what the Spirit produced within the biblical narrative. And that begins to give you a sense of, um, the, of the Spirit speaking. So actually, if you are driven to action or words that are contrary to what you would normally be driven to, that could be a marker of the Spirit if deluding ourselves. Yeah. And I think probably I'd then want to pop in what Kate was talking about in her talk, is the importance of community. Yeah. Yeah. The voice of the Spirit must be heard within community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the biggest disasters in Christian history have happened when people have stopped listen, listening to voices that are different from theirs. Yes, absolutely. Yes, the Spirit dispelling illusions but not leaving us disillusioned. Yes. So exactly, that that's right. Romans 8 is, yeah. is, is often focusing on the hope that is coming yes. through this spirit, which is not just a light hope, you know, I, I hope it works, but it's mm. about a longing for, a desire. Yes, yes. I see. Mm. Is there anything you'd like to add on, on that discernment question? Um, well, I think Paul has taken the, 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 the large part of that. So, you know, the, the, the community, I think, is critical and key. Um, there are also some really obvious things, um, some really obvious things in terms of the, the, the biblical testimony. You know, if, if, if you think the Spirit's telling you to do something negative that, that is, is, is against the, the, the two great commandments of loving God and loving neighbor, then that's not the Spirit. You know, if, if, if it doesn't uh, look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, um, behave like Jesus, it's probably not Jesus. You know, it's, 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 it's not the work of, um, it, it's, it's not the work of God. Um, so there, there are some things that are really very clear. 
Um, it, I think the, the challenge comes in those areas that are, are, are grey, and I think that's where we, we, have to, we have to enter into a discernment process. You know, the reason that discernment is called discernment is because we have to discern. It's not necessarily easy and straightforward. But the communities as well yes. have, the, have yeah. the difficulty of discernment. I mean, our church, the Church of England at, at the moment, you know, big debates about sexuality both sides, if I can be so banal as to put it that way, invoking the Holy Spirit, trying to discern the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, and, and coming up with very different conclusions. So how, how does a community like that, or a synod, or uh, a, a church, a parish church, begin together to discern what's right? How do you go about that? If I knew... <laughs> Answers, <laughs> please. Right, that's right. I'd have written to the Archbishop of Canterbury already. Um, it is, I mean, I, I think there are some, again, some themes, um, not knowing you can't get it right. Um, I think the themes of being willing to remain openness, mm. open, even when you know you're right, when you're confident you're right, but actually to remain open to the voice of people who are telling you that maybe you may not be right. Um, to seek out, you know, in, in our modern world, you know, it's, it's distressing, isn't it, to discover that all the vo- voices you get on social media are carefully organised to be the voices you like. And therefore, it is really difficult, especially today, to listen faithfully to the voices you don't like um, and to the voices that come from outside of your community. So actually, it's connected to the openness, being faithfully yeah. um, living, listening to the voices that disturb you and are uncomfortable which is not to say that they are right or you are right Mm. but actually the process of the listening is the right thing to do Mm. Um, and there's the stuff around remaining faithful to the unity as well which is really important don't give up perseverance Um, none of which really helps but it's something around there that begins to get you into the realm of the spirit I think yeah It's, 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 it's that realization and you know Paula you've already used the word that the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself so if if part of the Spirit's work is unity if part of the Spirit's work is to lead us into truth then that process whether it's a wrestle um, the process of listening to other voices the process of, of, of challenging our own inner voices and of not making the assumption um, that um, our voice is the Spirit's voice, um, but being prepared to enter that. It's, it's, a, it's an active and dynamic thing, and, and there's, no, uh, there's no way of getting out of that or away from that. And as long as we're prepared to do it, it's when people stand and say, I'm not going to listen to anything because actually this is what the Holy Spirit has said, and therefore that's, that's done. Um, that's almost a contradiction of the way the Holy Spirit has worked and moved. And um, we, we were talking earlier about uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, yes, where she, yes, yeah. she says nothing true will ever be said about God from a defensive posture. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, you have to be open to each other before yeah. you can even begin to, to be truthful. And I wonder whether there is also something about being comfortable. If you are completely comfortable, the Spirit is probably not in it. 
Mm. Because the Spirit likes to make us uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and when the Spirit makes us pray, Abba, Father, of course, Jesus prayed that in Gethsemane. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, is a good reminder mm. to me that it's yes. not always leading you into comfortable mm. places. Uh, more questions. Um, if the Holy Spirit is powerful and works in this world, why is the world so violent and awful? I think this is... No, I think that's definitely... Uh, no, no, I was, just saying, <laughs> I was going to say this is a question that you touched on at yes. the, right at the yes. very beginning. That's right. Very much context... Uh, driven and a very real question. Yeah. So, would you like to begin, Kate? Oh, I thought you were. Listening. I was just <laughs> relaxing at no, that I was point because uh, um, I, I think we have to be clear about the context that we're living in. Um, you know, in, in the traditions that I come from, we we talk about uh, a world that is fallen and that is somehow uh, not everything that God. Uh, had desired it to be, um, but within this fallen world, God is at work. God is at work progressing his purposes and moving history forward and doing his work in the, in the lives of uh, uh, ordinary uh, men and women. Um, and that in a context of fallenness. So the fallenness is not... Um, dealt with, at least at this point in history, we are, we're wrestling, as it were, to, to, to live out our lives in the recognition that God is with us and God is for us and that God loves us and that the things that happen around us, the things that are happening in the world, even the, the evil in the world, and I think this is going to be a question for you in terms of uh, addressing um, parts of that matter. Even the evil in the world does not change the fact that God is with us and for us and loves us. It simply is a fact that this is the world that we live in. And this is the work in which we are, uh, the, the world in which we are seeking to grow in, the world, work, world that we're seeking to love God in and love our neighbor in. And part of our task is to, is to do the best that we can in that with the help of the Spirit. Um, I don't know if there's and, more and you want to a add. A lot of the biblical ideas and explorations about the spirit, such as Romans, mm -hmm. were being done by people who were being persecuted. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And under yeah. siege. That's right, yeah. And I think, I mean, the language that Paul would use of this is, we are living in old creation. Um, Paul loves the language of old creation versus new creation. So new creation is what will come at the end of all times. Um, and Jesus' resurrection meant that the new creation could break into the old creation. So there is the possibility of love and joy and peace. And actually, the, the markings of the Spirit are all new creation markings. But we live, the new creation may, the kingdom, whatever language you want to use, has broken in, but we still live in the old creation. And therefore, um, the question is not maybe, why do such awful things happen? But in the old creation, 
why do such wonderful things happen? Good. You know, why can we still experience overwhelming love and hope in a world that is broken and fractured? Um, the answer is because of the presence of the Spirit. It's, it's which way round you ask the question. And, and for me, the, real, the really helpful answer is we live in a fractured world. And therefore, is it not a wonderful miracle um, how overwhelmingly generous and kind people can be in the face of tragedy and awfulness? And maybe we look at the wrong end of the, the picture sometimes. This leads a little bit to a question that's come in. Is If God is all understanding, why didn't it rain 15 minutes before Kate prayed? Well, as part of what I uh, shared, um, I said that we are called to engage with the Spirit, called to, uh, to, ex to expect the Spirit to work, called to um, uh, make our lives and our churches hospitable um, to the presence of the Spirit, and called to collaborate with the Spirit. Yes, indeed, why didn't it rain 15 minutes um, before I prayed? It, was not, it wasn't anything to do with me. Part of the, uh, this uh, this theme of the gifts of the Spirit is that God gives them twice, you know, so you receive a gift, you give it to somebody else, and in that way, community um, is created and relationship is deepened. So why did, it, why did that happen at that particular moment in time? My answer is, I don't know. But I'm grateful that I was in that space in order to be part of the gift-giving in that moment, and I, I was, I felt very privileged to have been there to um, witness that. But it could just have easily have been the other way around. I was going to say, what, what about the other way around, though? How, how, how can that make sense if somebody equally is standing, I don't know, next to a bed in King's College Hospital now, with someone who they're praying for, and, and is actually going to lose their life? Yes. So, yeah. So how, how can you tell that story about the rain? I, th I think it, it comes in the very last thing that I said. The, the Spirit blows where he wills. Our desire to contain and control the Spirit, that whole image of the genie in a bottle, that somehow in any situation and in any circumstance that we want to see different that we rub this bottle and that the genie pops out, the, the Holy Spirit pops out and does our bidding. It's the exact opposite. Um, the Spirit is already moving in the world. We have opportunities to engage and to join the Spirit in his activity in the world. What happened with the rain, I think, was partially that. I can't explain why it, uh, some suffer and others um, don't. All I know is that the Spirit is way ahead of us. And our task is not to tell the Spirit, you must do this or you must do that. Our task is to be open and receptive to when the Spirit is about to act in a particular way. And why the Spirit acts in a particular way, again, is not for me to explain our task is to respond to the activity of the Spirit and to recognize that the Spirit is active in all kinds of ways. Um, we're not always as expectant um, as uh, we 
could be or would even like to be, I think, sometimes. But that's part of the growing. That's part of the learning. He blows where he will. Do you want to add to this? Well, I think it's one of the, the biggest, you know, again, that I have about a list of 10 questions if I could answer then. I'd be sitting back happy by now. And one of them is that whole question of, um, is it worth praying? Shouldn't God know already before I pray? Why does God sometimes answer prayer and not other times answer prayer? It's that kind of whole morass of um, confusion, really, that emerges around that. And I agree with everything that you've said. Um, I I mean, I think there is also um, a simple answer to the question of prayer, which is, God really likes to be asked. Mm. Um, He doesn't like to be told what the answer will be to the question we ask, but God does like to be asked. And there is something something about that forging of relationship. It's back to this Romans 8 and the spirit interweaving with ours. Um, There needs to be a Godwards movement. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that we will get the answer that we want, but there is something in that. But like I say, if I could answer the question... Yes, it's, it's, it's all hints and guesses, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I'm, I'm also struck when every time I talk about prayer, I always remember C.S. Lewis, who said that we'll probably spend eternity thanking God for the prayers he didn't answer. Yes. <laughs> so little do we know ourselves yeah, uh, or the world, indeed. Um, carrying on, uh, f- time for a couple more questions. Um, if God's spirit is what gives people their spirit, does this mean that the true self is God? And in which case, how is Jesus, the Son of God, in a different way to the rest of us? Now, I think this is very you. It does sound very me, doesn't it? I kind of, <laughs> but I also want to go, well, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think the thing that's absolutely incredible about the biblical tradition about the Spirit is that you have, you know, that Genesis 2, 7, when God breathes into Adam, um, that is the moment when um, human being, the first ever human being, comes to life, is alive and receives spirit. Um, And so there is, it's just a kind of, it's a wonderful, wonderful image that we are deep within us, the recipient of spirit. Um, And in my mind, you know that lovely Augustine quote, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. That The reason for that is because God has breathed God's spirit into us and therefore our spirits are restless until we find the source of that spirit. And that is, is beautiful as a language. Um, I wonder whether, so in what way therefore is Jesus different? I think Jesus is different because Jesus is God. We are the recipient of God's spirit within us. Jesus is holy, truly, and profoundly God. We can be us cut off from God's spirit. Um, we can't be fully us cut off from God's spirit, but we can be us cut off from God's spirit. And I think there is, it's a difference of quality. Um, there is connection. And the, the really important thing is the connection. Um, but there is a different quality. Mm. I think I would need to add on the end of that. I might have changed my mind by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. For now, I think that. Saying I don't know is perfectly all right here, <laughs> let me assure you. Um, how do we encourage our people, this is for you, mm. how do we encourage our people to be more open to the spirit when so many have a British reserved nature from their upbringing? 
our children and those from other cultures amongst us seem to be more free and open to the Spirit. Yeah. So, you know, can the Holy Spirit enter a, a British English person? An English yes, person. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to go with Paula and say I don't know. <laughs> I, I think some of this relates to something that Paula said earlier about our, our desire to control. And, and it, it, it is... Um, um, surrendering is not an easy thing to do. Um, but we practice surrender. And I think sometimes in, in other contexts, there are just fewer uh, filters to go through. So the desire to control or the ability to control may be less in another context. I think it's practice. I think it's practice. I think the disciplines are called disciplines for a reason. I, I, think, I think it's practice. I think we, we, we work with God. We work with um, being open to God. Um, and we just practice. And sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. But we will hopefully learn to discern and learn to recognize that, okay, that's me. That's, that's not the spirit. That's the spirit. Um, and begin to flow in that. And as I said right at the end, just to bear in mind that at the end of the day, the, the, the Spirit of God wants us to know more than we want to know. You know, we often think it's all to do with us and what we can do in our desperation or our desire. But just the posture of openness and saying, actually, I, I recognize, Spirit of God, that you want me collaborating with you, working with you, joining in with you more than I want to join in with you. The medieval Germans were much more playful than your English oh. post-Victorian. They had uh, something they did at Pentecost. They had wheeled for Ascension Day the statue in the parish church up through the roof. Uh, for, and then on Pentecost, Whitson, they would let down a little wooden dove over the congregation. Uh, but through the hole in the roof, the choir boys had got buckets of water. <laughs> And they poured it through the hole. So every, as everybody was looking at the wooden dove, <laughs> so the water came over them. And the wettest person in the church was known as the Pentecost bird in the village for the rest of the year. Now, I thought we'd try this now. <laughs> um, but that playfulness, that sense that actually do not believe for a minute that the spirit is wooden mm. and something you can gawp at. It drenches you and it l makes you leave this place a different okay. mm. yeah. specimen. Yeah. 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 I can hear the bell ringing, so I'm, I'm so sorry. There, was, there are a lot of questions here. I hoped I've asked some which were similar to others that came in, but I did say that we would finish at 8 o'clock. Um, one of the things I was reading as, um, as I was preparing for this evening is... Some of you may know uh, of a woman, a, a remarkable woman, who was called Mother Maria Skopsova. She was a Russian nun uh, who lived in Paris in the 1930s. She was drawn in her life through those very difficult years in France, particularly in the 40s with the uh, arrival of the Nazis, to help refugees. And she was known, uh, as she is in the Eastern Church, um, as she was a Russian Christian, she was known as the Saint of the Open Door. She was arrested. She died in Ravensbrück concentration camp on Good Friday, 1945. 
having substituted herself, we think, for someone else going to the gas chamber. She was no plaster saint. She was a single mother. She was divorced. She had two children. She then took monastic vows. She was very unconventional nun because the neighbors were always complaining that she was having two noisy parties. <laughs> the reason I mention her for you as we leave is that she wrote this not long before she died. Either Christianity is fire or there is no such thing. Either Christianity is fire or there is no such thing. And it struck me because of the flames of love which the spirit is associated with. Places where God's passion comes through. And uh, I, I bring it to the table at the end of this event simply because I think we have listened to two people this evening in an honest and attractive way who have reminded us because of just who they are and the passion with which they speak that Christianity is fire. And for that, I thank you very much. And, and thank you very much for being here. Uh, just to remind you about the bookstall here, and then if you'd like your book signed, um, there will be two chairs that will suddenly appear there uh, in a moment. And thank you very much, and a very safe journey home. <laughs>